We're going to pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. We kind of had an interim there with Mother's Day, which I don't typically deviate from the plan, but this time I kind of felt like I needed to, and, and I'm glad I did because I got to tell you a whole bunch of embarrassing stories about me, so that was fun. So we, last time, if you remember, we've been talking about the, the seven festivals that are celebrated by Israel every single year, and here they are. We started off with the spring ones, with Passover unleavened bread and first fruits. And how well, the biggest thing that we wanted to see is how these were prophetic in, in nature and they were pointing to Jesus' first coming. He fulfilled Passover by being the perfect Passover lamb. He fulfilled unleavened bread by having no sin in him. And ultimately, first fruits, he, was, he re- fulfilled with the resurrection. Then you get into Pentecost, which is 50 days after first fruits. And that was the birth of the church when the Holy Spirit came down. And then we, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how we were in this summer interval, how there's this four-month window where nothing's going on. And we talked about how that's kind of the age that we're in right now, this, change, this, this church age, because we're between the time of the first fulfillment and we haven't quite got to the second fulfillment, which is coming very, very soon. And then two weeks ago, we talked about specifically the Feast of Trumpets. And I want to read for you Leviticus 23 that talks about this, and we're going to kind of go back. Do we have that up there, guy? There we go. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. Now, Leviticus is quickly going through everything and giving you a quick rundown. Uh, you see in Numbers and other places a little more explanatory this, the types of offerings that they would make and whatnot. But basically, their calendar looks like this. And I know we keep going over this, but I want to make sure you're getting it. So they run off two calendars the civil and the religious. When it was the time of Passover, the first Passover, the getting ready for the Exodus, when they are leaving Egypt, is when God said, the seventh month shall now become your first month. Okay, that's when it changed. It was the month of Nisan. That's when Passover happens. And so it's the 14th of Nisan, and then so on from there with the rest of those feasts. Now we're getting into the month of Tishri, which is now the seventh month. Originally it was the first month. They're all the same, they just changed the order. And the Feast of Trumpets is the time that, as I said two weeks ago, that we believe is going to be the rapture of the church, the taking away of the saints, if you will. And the reason we look at this is several different reasons. I just want to recap what this is, because um, it's been a couple of weeks, and, and going into what we're doing next, I want to make sure that we have a foundation. But... One of the names of this feast is the Feast of Trumpets or Yom Kippur or whatever you want to call it, but one that's not widely recognized, which will clear out a whole lot of mysticism in the scripture, is that it is the feast of the day and hour, which no one knows. And the reason for that is because this feast starts when the new moon has been seen. And if you've ever seen seen the new moon, I didn't put the pictures up this week, I had it last week. It's at best that teeny tiny little sliver, and realistically, you probably don't see much at all. It's kind of a black spot up in the sky. So you had to be looking for it, because if you weren't looking for it, you were going to miss it. And so what would happen is that they would have to stand out there, and then once two witnesses came to the Sanhedrin and said, we have seen the new moon, they grilled them to make sure they've seen it, then they would declare the Feast of Trumpets has now begun, which is great and exciting. But remember, it had to be seen. They had to be watching for it. If they weren't watching for it, they would miss it. They wouldn't see it. If it was a cloudy day, they may not see it. So they would declare that the Feast of Trumpets, but that's all well and good. But the problem is, is that if you weren't prepared ahead of time for the Feast of Trumpets, it's too late now, it started. Now originally it was a one-day feast, it's now become a two-day feast. Um, 
the main reason for that is the fact that in case they miss it, they get an extra day. It gives them a little bigger window. Janet brought up a good point. Is now there's Jews all over the world, so it's moon uh, is showing on one side of the world when it's not on the other, unless we're in a flat earth, right? That's a big thing right now. I don't know if you've seen that, but flat earth, people are crazy. Okay, anyway. But the bottom line is, is that they've changed it into a two-day feast because it is easy to miss. I mean, it's one of those things that they have to be watching for. And so all of this, the month of Elul, which is the month prior to Tishri, they have to be preparing. And in this time of preparation, they are getting things ready for this because, again, this is going into what we call the 10 days of awe, which is what we're going to talk about today. It's the time with the start of the Feast of Trumpets going up to um, Rosh Hashanah. It's the Day of Atonement. And we'll talk about that next week. But this 10-day window is a time of penitence, is a time of repentance. But the bottom line is this, guys, is that if they were not prepared, you could not start when that trumpet blew. It had to happen prior. That way, when the trumpet blew, that you had been watching for it and you were all prepared. That's the main thing that I want you to see. Now, remember, there are three trumpets that are talked about in Scripture. And this is where we get confused, and this is where it gets a little bit, because we just assume that they're just using adjectives, explaining what these are. No, these are specific names. You have the first trump, the last trump, and the great trump. And I joked two weeks ago, I can't resist it. And President Trump, I don't know why, I'm sorry. Squirrels with knives running through my head, this is how I work. Okay, the first trump is blown at uh, Pentecost. The last trump is blown on the Feast of Trumpets. And the great trump is blown on the Day of Atonement. Now, we'll get into that next week, but remember, there is a distinction. And it says, at that last trump, when it's blown, the dead in Christ shall rise first. What is that talking about? That last trump is a clue. It's something to look for. A Jewish mind would know that. Because of our Western culture, we've missed out on that because we've not been taught that. What have we done? And we don't even realize we've done it. We've analogized this. Oh, that last trump. Oh, is it a real trumpet? Is it God screaming? What is it? And so we've, we, we're missing out on all the nuances here. So we've got to know that. So once that last trump blows, it's, you're not prepared. It's too late. And that's where we are. They had plenty of time to prepare. They chose not to do it. And one more thing I want to point out here is remember, these all have to do with harvest. You have the spring harvest and the fall harvest. Okay? So let's go back to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to start in verse 36. We're going to go through quite a bit of scripture today, but I want you guys to see this. And I'm going to break some of this stuff down as we go. And I'm going to try not to talk too fast. Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. It says, but of that day and hour, no one knows. Now remember, I talked about this two weeks ago. How do we read that? But of that day and hour, comma, no one knows. But that is not what it says. But it says, but of that day and hour, no one knows. In other words, it is a specific mentioning of a day. Right? The Feast of Trumpets. Not even the angels in heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were... So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Let's pause there for a moment. So Jesus is telling us something. That when the Son of Man is returning, it's going to be like the days of Noah. Do you think it would behoove you to maybe go back and look and see what was going on in those days when Noah was on the earth? I would say yes. Let's go on. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore." 
for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is the servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunkards, and the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, and at an hour that he is not aware of, and will cut him in two, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now let's look at this for a moment. There were two groups of people, right? One gets taken, one doesn't. Okay? This isn't a 50-50 split. That's not the point. You've got one group of people who are watching and ready and prepared, and you've got one that is not. Right? They're not paying attention. They're not looking. They're not waiting. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. What happens when the master comes home? He's found that he's been diligent. He's been working. He's been doing what he's supposed to be doing. The one who's watching and prepared. But the other one, not so much. And then it talks about this servant. And it's not like he said the servant's just being lazy or he's sitting around or he's playing his Xbox. It doesn't say any of that. Like he spends too much time playing Candy Crush. That's not what it says. It says he's beating his fellow servants. Like that's just kind of weird to me, right? I would hope that jumps off the page of you. Everything's all cute and stuff until all of a sudden it's not like he's sitting around while the other guy's doing all the work. No, he's beating the other guy. The other guy is the one who's prepared and watching, and then you got this one who's beating that one. What does that sound like to me? It sounds like persecution, guys. You've got one part of the world who in Christianity was looking and watching and prepared and, and waiting, and you got the other ones who are doing what? Persecuting those that are doing that. Okay? So you've got that. But why is he doing it? He's sitting around, he's eating and drinking and all this other stuff. He says the master is delayed. He's not coming. Where is this Jesus that you've been waiting on? Where is his return? I hear people all the time say, you know what? Uh, I want to have fun now, but maybe at the end of my life, I'll come to God then. It's not a lack of whether God exists. It's, well, I just want to do life. I want to enjoy it, right? I hear this all the time, guys. When I'm out there and I'm talking to people and I'm talking about God, they say, I just, I had one young lady one time come up to me. She's like, it's not that I don't want to be a Christian. I just don't want to give up my friends. I said, well, then you're not ready to be a Christian. Because Jesus says, sell all that you have and follow me. That doesn't mean you have to give up your friends. It means you have to be willing to give up your friends. You have to be willing to give up everything you have. Because once you make that decision that Jesus is your Lord and your Savior, it's not your get-out-of-jail-free card. He is your Lord. He is your Master. He is King over all. Then everything you have, including your time and your resources belong to him there's not a lot of people in this world who would sell off everything and live in a bus right that's crazy people don't do that except nikki and you know she's crazy look at the pants she's wearing have you seen those things we could shut the lights off and you wouldn't even know the lights were off i'm just kidding nikki thanks for coming today it's so great to see you again yeah <laughs> guys this will be nikki's last sunday with us ever so 
No, I'm just teasing. But I mean, but you think about that. What is the principle? What is something that they have shown us? Is that they, if you don't know, they travel all over the country doing street ministry, helping churches out, and they go wherever the wind happens to be blowing, literally. It's like they have no plan. I could not live that way. It would kill me, literally kill me. Not, not metaphorically kill me, like this would be hard. It may kill me. You would come to my funeral, I hope. I don't want flowers. They die. Okay, send my wife chocolate. She'll eat them. But, but here's the deal, guys, is that, but what did they do? They gave up everything to follow him where the Lord led. And that is what we are called to do as a Christian. And why do we do that? Because we're watching for the day and hour. We do not know, but we can know the signs and the seasons. They're all there. We're there to watch. Let's look at another. So let's read past this because I wanted to read this. I wanted you to get the context. Let's go into Matthew chapter 25. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for, your, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answer saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready and went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for the Son of Man, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. All right, let's again, what do we got? We got 10, we got 5 and 5. Does that mean that half's in, half's out? Not necessarily, okay? Let's not just pinhole it to that. But the bottom line is, is you've got five people who have taken that month of Elul to prepare, that they're ready. Now, in the Jewish wedding feast, and we haven't talked about this, we're going to get into this probably on Wednesday nights a little bit, but in the wedding, I shouldn't say feast, but in the wedding, the way they do things is completely different than us, okay? They don't say yes to the dress. There's no such thing as a bridezilla. I thought that was funny. Tough crowd. Stay with me here, guys. Okay. They, but part of it is, is that the, the bridegroom goes away to prepare a place for the bride. I go to prepare a place for you. That where I am there you may also be. That's all part of this. This is a wedding covenant that Jesus has made. And the Father is part of that and so on. So here we go. The bridegroom goes away. He has to stay there and preparing house. So the Father says the house is prepared. You may now go gather your bride. The bride is supposed to be watching and waiting. Prepared to go because you don't know when he's coming back. In fact, the son doesn't know. Only the father knows. You guys picking up on this? You seeing how these connect? Okay. So he tells him to go. He comes. She's not ready and says hey i'm here let's do this you got five prepared five not you've got five that brought their their lamps and brought surplus oil in order to keep them burning but you got five that didn't what is oil a symbol of in the bible the holy spirit how does one receive the holy spirit they become born again that's the giving of the Spirit. So what do we have? we got five people prepared that are born again, that are full of the oil of God. And you've got five that aren't. What's that? Who would think they are? Where are they today? They're sitting in churches all across this country. Going to church does not make you a Christian. Joyce Meyer, I think, said it great. Sitting in a car or a garage does not make you a car. Okay? Going to GNC does not make you fit. We could do this all day long. Going to Golden Crowd does not make you skinny either, just so you know. Okay. 
proof positive. So, but what we got here is we've got people that are full of oil, prepared, watching, waiting. And all of a sudden, the bridegroom came upon the other five. They weren't prepared. Now they're scrambling, trying to give us some of your oil. And what does he say? No, you need to go buy some. That's not insinuating you buy your salvation. Some people try to somehow make that a case. That's not what's going on here. So they had to leave to go get it. And when they came back, the door was closed. And what did Jesus say? I never knew you. I never knew you. Matthew 7 Verse 21, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, the great and dreadful day of the Lord, 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 have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Okay? Doing the works of a good person, of what a Christian would do, has nothing to do with knowing God, being in a relationship with Jesus. It drives me crazy to walk into some of these churches and watch how mechanical they are. They go through the motions, they do their time, they stand up, they read this, they sit down, they recite that, they sing their hymns, and none of that is wrong. But they're missing the relationship with Jesus. I couldn't care less what Luther said or any of these other old guys said 200 some years ago. Not that it was bad, but let's stick with the word. Let's see what Jesus has to say about a situation. You know what amazes me? You guys remember back in the 90s, the WWJD bracelets? What would Jesus do? It was this huge fad, if you don't know. It was all over the place. It, it would be like it was trending before trending was a thing. If they had Twitter, it would have been hashtag WWJD. We didn't have Twitter back then. Okay? We barely had cell phones. Internet was horrible. You had to wait four minutes to connect and 90 minutes to download a picture. You young people, be thankful for the times in which you live. Okay? But here's the deal. You, but, but you had all of this stuff going on. WWJD is all great. And then you go ask somebody, well, what would Jesus do? And like, well, he'd be nice. He'd love people the way they are. Really? Let me show you something. Because there was not a time in, in, in the entire Bible of any record we have of Jesus where he said, hey, it's cool that you're sinning, keep it up, love you. No. Every time it's you, go and sin no more. I mean, you ask people, they say, well, WWJD, WWJD, good. What would he do and how do we know it? We have a record of it. It's in this big book full of duct tape right now, holding it together. What would Jesus do? Go read about it sometime. And this is what it is. What is the moral of all of this dealing with the Feast of Trumpets and the month of Elul going into the month of Tishri? To be ready. To be watching because he's returning. You've got to be prepared. Feast of Trumpets starts the 10 days of awe. Now, this is a period of time that is from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur. It's known as the, another name is the 10 days of penitence, okay? There's a couple different ways. But it appears um, from sources that come from the land of Israel. Now, this is not mentioned in Scripture per se. It's alluded to in several places, but it's not like it's, it's a, a biblical thing necessarily. But it's included in the Jerusalem Talmud. Now, let me show you this, this image here, Okay. So you've got the month of Elul going on. That's the time of preparation going in to Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, which is Tishri 1. From Tishri 1 to Tishri 10, when Yom Kippur starts, is the Days of Awe. It is this time in which that you're repenting, you're seeking God. The concept these days is this special unit, um, kind of the as earliest we can find, goes back to prior to the 3rd century with uh, one rabbi named Yohanan. And he lived in Israel during this period, and it was this conception of a divine judgment. 
during this season. I want to read you a quote out of one of their Talmuds. Here we go. It says, three books are open in heaven on Rosh Hashanah. One for the completely wicked, one for the completely righteous, and one for those in between. The completely righteous are immediately inscribed in the book of light. The completely wicked are immediately inscribed in the book of death. The fate of those between is suspended until Yom Kippur. If they do well, they are inscribed in the book of life. If not, the book of death. Now, again, this is a Jewish rabbi. This is not scripture. I don't want to make you think that. But this is the mindset that there are three books that are open on the Feast of Trumpet. You've got the book of life for the righteous. You've got the book of life for the unrighteous. And you've got the book of life for those that are sitting on the fence. They're doing okay, not great, could do better. So, on the Feast of Trumpets, if you are a righteous man, your name is written in the book of life. In on the Feast of Trumpets, that if you're an unrighteous man, your name would be written on the book of death, and you would not live to the end of the year. Okay? And if you're in between, then judgment is delayed for 10 days up until the Day of Atonement. You've got a 10-day window to fix it. They're given an opportunity to repent before the book of cl is closed. And so the days of awe is between trumpets and atonement. And this is analogous for us guys as the great tribulation because there's going to be one massive sign in the world when all the Christians disappear. And we were talking about this a little bit this morning because there's all of these things that are already out there preparing for this. Let me give you a couple. That New Agers have already in their teachings have some sort of concept where a massive group of people will just disappear off the earth. Now, I don't have a reason why yet. Maybe they do, but not the stuff that I looked into. But they're preparing for it. So it's like, don't be shocked. That's interesting. You've also got, if you've heard of the term panspermia, and we talked about this this morning if you were here. If you weren't here early this morning for Bible study with Janet, you probably should have been. It's pretty good. Anyway, that's your free plug. I'll send you a bill. Okay. But this panspermia idea is that some wise race from some other planet came to Earth, seeded life from there. We evolved into what you see today, right? The goo to you via the zoo. That's how we got here. So what, it, what they're saying is that there's going to be a time where these alien life forms are going to come down and suck out all the people that are holding back evolution, and then they will, they will uh, stand up before them and say, hey, it was us that started it. Here we are. You're welcome. We got them out of the way. Now the, the favored race can go on. So there's all of these things. There's more than this. This is just part of it. But there's all of these things that are already preparing for this event outside of the church. Now, would they call it the rapture? No, they would not. In fact, do they even know that there's a Christian term for that? More than likely not. They might, probably not. This 10 days of awe is at this time what we call the time of Jacob's trouble. Okay? And we will get into that a little bit more later. But the bottom line is this. When we get from trumpets to the Day of Atonement, there's this 10-day window, window. They do absolutely nothing. They do nothing. It is a time of repentance. It's a time of weeping. It is a time of fasting. They do nothing. Okay? They sit back. Now, the Day of Atonement is by far the most holy day of the year. It's the day that the high priest would enter into the most holy place and perform all of these sacrifices and all of this other stuff. Okay? Again, we'll get into that next week, but I want to talk about this because this is where we're going. That from the physical standpoint, that these 10 days is the day that it's, it's a harvest time. And they're bringing in the grain. And during this 10-day window, as the harvest is coming in, they begin to separate... The, the wheat from the chaff, okay? Now, you've seen this all through Scripture, the threshing floors, all that kind of stuff. 
And at the end of this 10 days, they've got this big pile of chaff, which is basically the not good stuff for nothing, and they burn it. It goes away. And then what they do is during at the end of this 10 days, they begin to look back at the year, uh, harvest speaking-wise, and, and see what they planted and what they watered. And was our harvest good? Did we have a good harvest? Did we not have a good harvest? And they begin to go back and look at that and say, boy, did we do everything that we needed to? Did we do this correctly? Maybe if we'd planted more seed. Maybe if we'd added a little more fertilizer. Maybe if we'd watered a little bit more, we'd have had more. But no matter what you did, you're stuck at this point with what you got because you can't go back in time and fix it. It's a time of this, this reckoning where we're looking and say, is this what I wanted? I mean, there's farmers everywhere that are planting seed right now. I assume they're still planting. It seems like that. The rain's not helping them any. But they're planting it right now. Why? Because at the fall time, they want to pull that off and sell it. They can't sit there at the fall and it's like, huh, let's go back and plant more seed. It doesn't work that way. And this is what we're talking about, guys, is in this 10 days of awe, when we reflect of what's going on, are we happy with what we see? Now, I wrote an article in the newspaper this last week, and I want to put down this equation for you, because it honestly, it really bothers me. There's something unique about this town. I've told you guys this before, but there is a religious spirit in this town unlike anything I've ever seen. I've always seen it. I've always encountered But it is, I mean, it is strong. And what I mean by that is it's not like it's a lack of belief in God. I, I don't know. There's probably a handful of people who say, no, I don't believe in God. Most everybody in this town probably believes in God. But how you become right with him is the problem. Because in, not just here, but this is around the world, is that if I wrote out a mouth problem, and, and this is how we get right, we've got faith, and then you've got plus works, works, and what does that equal? Salvation. How do you become right with God? Well, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you've got to go to church, you've got to give your money, you've got to be nice people. You can't flip people off when you're driving down the interstate. That's, that's a sin, sends you straight to hell. It's just faith. You've got to believe in God, and there's no question about that. But then you've got to do a whole bunch of good stuff, too. And then, if you do these things, then this is where you land. Well, here's a question I always have. How many of these things do i got to do? Because, and they can't answer that. And you know why they can't answer that? WWJD. They don't know what Jesus would do. And it really, guys, at this point, it's not what Jesus would do. It's what Jesus has done. Because this is where, where the religious world would put you. They would say, you got to do this. you got to be this way. This is where the non-religious world would put you. They may eliminate this, but you got to have this. That if there's a heaven, I would sure hope that God would let me in. I'm a good person. I always love their look on their face. Like, well, I'm a good person. I look at them like, no, you're not. You're a dirtbag like the rest of us. You laugh, but you know how many walls that breaks through? Because they'll start laughing. Because they'll say, hey, I'm a dirtbag too. If you want to break it down scientifically, technically we're all dirtbags. From dust you came, from dust you shall go. Okay. Anyway. But that is the, the non-biblical equation on how to do this. But what does the Bible say? You start right here. You've got faith to believe, right? You believe in Jesus. You put your faith in Him. From there... You get to this point, salvation. And that's really it. But where does works come in? After. 
Not to get to that. It's that plus that equals that. Faith plus salvation equals works. What does that mean? That means you're willing to sell all that you have and jump on a bus and travel around the country to do the work of the Lord. That means that when you live in Rockport, Missouri, that everything you have belongs to Him and your time and resources are strictly used, not just for your pleasure, that's all well and good, but for the glorifying of God, that people may see the light that's in you and glorify Jesus. That's why we do it. Now let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, starting in verse 8. This is one you guys can probably quote. It says, For by grace you have been saved, through faith, not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I always quote that. I quote it all the time. Every funeral, I quote that. I don't like doing funerals more than anybody else, but I, I always quote this. Why? Because we are saved by grace, through faith. That's the mechanism that gets us there. And it's not of works. It's faith in Christ alone. That's it. He's done the work. But what we stop at is verse 9. We need to read verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, let's read this in context, guys. When were we created in Christ Jesus? Not the day you were born. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. These works were laid out beforehand, but we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. When you get here, your works reflect this, not the other way around. And that's the problem. James is completely misunderstood. Sit down with the Mormon and ask him, how do you get saved? He'll open the book of James. We're going to walk through this quickly. James chapter 1, we're going to read a lot here, so just bear with me. James chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 21. It says, therefore, and, I, and the only reason, because I want you to catch the context of what's happening here. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. How, what saves your soul? The word. Does that line up? It's implanted in you? How does that? Matthew 4, Luke 8, the parable of the sower, right? Same thing. Verse 22, but be doers of the word. And not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Who deceived you? You did. You heard the word, you did nothing with it. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, he goes away, and he immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Now, some of you may want to look in the mirror and forget what you look like. But those of us that are blessed with charming good looks and all of this other stuff... You know, every morning when I get up, I look at the mirror, and I'm just like, you sure are lucky, because you get to look at me every day. But imagine this, guys. Put this in principle. You walk up to the mirror. You say, oh, hey, you're pretty good looking. You turn around. It's like, oh, I forgot what I look like. Oh, yeah, you're still good looking. Okay. You know, I mean, that's, that's literally what it's saying, that if you're a hearer only and not a doer. That's how ludicrous it is. Like in the, in the, the words of James here, and his mind says, like, if you're simply listening to the word and doing nothing with it, this is insanity. Why would you even do it? You're wasting your time. You've deceived yourself to think that you have actually done something good here. Let's go on. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. How will he be blessed? 
Because his works line up with the salvation and faith that he already had. Because he's a doer of the word. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue and deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Okay, now wait a minute here. How are you deceiving your own heart? How do we, we know? If you think you're religious, but you don't bridle your tongue, are you? How do you bridle your tongue? You've got to have this. You've got to have that oil. You've got to be, there's only one way to control that mouth. It's amazing to me, guys, and I'll tell you this. I've watched people try not to curse before who are not born-again believers. Did not go well. Okay? One miss with the hammer is all it takes. But I have seen people who have had a life-changing encounter with Jesus, and it's amazing that in a few months how their life has changed, how their words have changed. I mean, just playing golf with Paul last week, and this is not on Paul, okay? This is not a story about Paul. This is a story about somebody who came up to us to tell us a joke. Joke wasn't that funny and certainly wasn't clean, but be that as it may. What was funny is that afterwards, apparently, whoever was golfing with us had told him what I do for a living, and he comes up, he's like, I'm so sorry. If I had known you were a minister, I wouldn't have said that. And I was, I'm like, well, that's okay. The devil will think it's funny when you get there. I didn't say that. I'm just kidding. I didn't say that. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. It's a joke, people. Calm down. But, but I mean, the reality is, it's like, my being a minister should not be the reason you wouldn't want to tell me that. It's that light that's in me that should be the reason you don't want to say that. It is funny when you're playing golf and, and they're cussing after every drive and they're missing putts and all of that. And then they find out you're a pastor. It's like, clean it up quick. You know, suddenly, oh, every shot I take, oh, that was a nice drive. That was a great shot. I played golf with me. Those aren't great shots. Paul stuck with me all year. All right, let's jump into chapter 2. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, guys, stop here for a minute. Now, there was a cultural thing that was going on here. The rich got catered on. The poor were, came in. We don't care. There's a principle that's going on here. It's simply that we, we go out to everybody. But I have watched this take place in churches like you can't even believe. In a church that I was on staff at, there was a man in that church who was one of the biggest givers in the church. And he was given free reign. He was allowed to teach, and several of the things that he taught are borderline heretical. In other words, these things are not accurate with Scripture. And the pastor knew it, and the pastor refused to deal with it. And you know why? Because if he makes him mad, what happens? The checks stop flowing. And with this guy, they probably would have. You know, the sad thing is, is that if you, number one, is that we don't give to control. We give to God. It belongs to Him. Those of you who tithe and give 10% of, of whatever you give, it's not because I'm doing a good job. It's because we serve a good God. And it's His money, and we steward it the way that He wants to. That's number one. Number two is that that pastor should have handled this situation differently. You cannot be controlled by people, or you will get nothing done. And he's going to answer to God for that. Good man. Love the guy to death. God, but, but there are just some things like that. And so the, the bottom line here is, guys, is that why would we pay special attention to this person? But it happens all the time. And they knew that they had control with their money. And I hear this happen in churches all the time. It's sad. Verse 5, listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not 
do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? And again, what we're talking about here, this is a cultural thing that's going on. But these are the guys that would sue them. But it's not talking about you can't be rich and enter the kingdom of God. It's that the richness can't control you and you enter the kingdom of God. It can't become your God. I know a lot of good people that are fearful of losing all that they've made. There was a lady that, that I knew one time, extremely wealthy, but lived in perpetual fear because she was afraid somebody was going to steal it, the stock market was going to crash. I mean, the stress was unbelievable, worth millions of dollars. If she lost $10 million tomorrow, that'd be like you and I dropping a 20 on the street. Yeah, it sucks, but we'll, we'll move on. But, I mean, it was just, it controlled her, and that was her life. And the only thing she cared about, it wasn't what she could give and what she could do with that. It's what she can consume and what she could get. And so, again, it's not a rich versus poor thing. It's the attitude here. Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And for, for, whatever, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment was this saying is that you can't just keep part of it you got to keep all of it James was in Jerusalem this is the Jerusalem church he was the head over all of that and so he is speaking to this body and that body typically from a Jewish mindset is wealth meant something poor meant something else you got Lazarus and the rich man you got the story about all of that kind of stuff but it's not that it is that if you miss one you transgress them all all of them not just one so, do right. Verse 14, and this is where it gets confusing. Again, just laying out context is all we're doing. What does a prophet, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things that are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. How are we saved, folks? Not by faith, by grace, through faith in Jesus. These two come together. Your works do not match this confession. If somebody comes to you, it's destitute, and you have the ability to do something, and you do nothing. Your works don't match. Your words are idle. Hey, be warm, be filled, have a great day. You do nothing for them. That's this. This is trying. We're trying to do nice things to get there. That's what he's talking about. All right, let's verse, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. How is his faith being shown? By the works that he's doing. That equation here, faith plus works. Well, no, that, you can't do that because it doesn't equal salvation. It's because of this. My works are showing you. My works changed. You believe that there is one God, you do well, even the demons believe and they tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? 
Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Why is faith without works dead? Because your works show your faith and your salvation. Abraham believed and it was accounted to him righteousness. And because of that belief, then he took Isaac up on the mountain because he believed God and he knew. And he followed God where he told him, he said, get up out of this place and move. He went, took a long detour, but he went. All of his works were a product of his belief in the promises of God. Rahab risked her life to bring in the spies, but she believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they, he was the one true God. So your body without your spirit is dead. Faith without works is dead. You're not saved by your works. Your works are a product of your faith and your salvation, and that's the key. And when we look at this 10 days of awe, guys, this is the time that they're sitting there looking. Did we do all that we can do? Did I put seed out there? Am I constantly planting? Am I constantly watering? And I'll tell you this. You know how you figure out? Is that if you show up to the field and you've never received a harvest, maybe you're not planting enough and maybe you're not watering enough. Because at some point the harvest has to come. And I've watched Christians my entire life come and sit there and they're waiting for the harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. I'm a worker, I'm waiting, let's go. And they've never seen the harvest, and we're talking about souls here, guys. They've never seen the harvest they're waiting on. It makes me wonder, have you really planted the seed? Did you really water the seed? Or did you do what, what, what is a popular saying is that, you know, uh, preach the gospel in all times and if necessary, use words. Words are necessary, folks. Yes, people should be able to look at us and see the light inside of us and let our works show our faith. There's no question about that. And the guy that came up with that saying meant very well, but the church screwed it up like WWJD. We would say, what would Jesus do without ever knowing what Jesus would do? So we'd make it up. So in the same thing, why is it necessary to use words? Because if they do not hear, they cannot believe. How do you cast seed? Don't just walk around with a smile on your face. That's a great start. But once in a while, you got to plant that seed. At the end of this season, when they're, all the, the farmers are getting around, they're getting ready to harvest, they're not going to stand there and say, boy, I wonder if that seed's going to come up. It's going to be done. And what's done is done. And there's nothing you can do to go back and change it. And when I look at my life and the things that I want to do, I always ask my question this. Because why did Jesus come into this world? He did not come to teach us to take care of the widow, to, to, to feed the poor and help them and all. Those things were in the law already. He came to seek and save that which was lost, to undo the works of the enemy, and that we could have salvation. And he said this statement, it says, Greater love has no man than this, the man willing to lay down his life for his friends. And so every day when I get up, I ask my, myself this question, What does love require of me? Because love required of Jesus that he laid down his life for me. What does love require for me for somebody else? When I read you guys 
that, that message, and believe me, I hear this stuff all the time. People ask, it's like, why are you doing this? And you know what I say? It's because Grace Church loves God and they love people. What does love require of us? We don't just play church. We don't just go to church. I think it's time, guys, that we begin to reflect upon our lives and start looking back and say, you know what? I'm not getting a harvest. Did I plant enough seed? Did I water enough seed? Did I use fertilizer? Or did I just convince myself that I've been doing good all this time and never really did the things that God has commanded us to do? Take this time and treat it like we're in that window. Let's look back. Are we happy with where we are? Because there's only one person that can change it, and that's you. That's what this 10 days of awe is, guys. It's a time of penitence. Yes, there's a prophetic narrative that goes along with this in the time of Jacob's trouble, and we'll talk about some of that next week. But more importantly, it's, it's like, why, why am I here? I grew up in a church that everybody talks about church growth. Everywhere I go, it's church growth. How big's your church? How many are growing? What do you got going on? And so, I don't even ask those questions because I, I couldn't care less. You know, God's going to do what God's going to do. But I grew up in this church that they desperately wanted to see the church grow. Why do they want to see the church grow? It's the only mechanism that you can measure that makes you feel like you're doing anything. So their solution to this is they would begin to pray. God, send the people in. God, if you want them here, you'll send them here. We call out to the north, south, east, and west, and we call those people in. Can you show me one verse in the Bible that ever tells you to pray that God would send people to you? There's not a single one. Their heart's in the right place. Everybody's heart's in the right place. We don't know our word. Because he told them to go. He told the disciples to go. He told you and I to go. This is not the place where people should be getting saved. This is the place where the saved people come together. They come in and they go out. You guys see how everything we've been talking about the last couple of years is all tying together. There's this message that the Holy Spirit is trying to get across to all of us. And the choice that we have is we can sit there and say, well, it didn't work the way we wanted. Hope it would get better. But we can do something about it. Because, guys, there is a lost and dying world out there, and it starts right here at home. Some of us are called to go into all the world. All of us are called to go into our neighborhoods. And we're not doing it. I asked the young people a couple of weeks ago, I said, how do you become a Christian? You know what their answers were? Keep the Ten Commandments. Get baptized. Be a good person. These are church people. I asked him, okay, well, how do you keep the Ten Commandments? What are they? Well, we shouldn't murder. Well, that's a good one. We'll start with that. That's, that's a good one. Shouldn't lie. Yeah, that's a good thing, too. What's another command? Ah, oh, keep the Sabbath. Oh, good. Are you doing that? You're like, well, what? I said, what's the Sabbath? Well, it's Sunday. Really? When did that change? I didn't get the memo. And they don't, they don't know. They don't have a clue. And we've got a bunch of young people in this city alone that are lost that are sitting in church. And the bridegroom's going to show up. And they're going to be like, can I have some of what you have? We can't wait till that point to share with them what we have. We've got to do it now. If you're not passionate about the lost in this community, then you don't have the heart of God. Jesus told them to watch and be ready, be prepared, because I'm coming, you don't know when. And that's great, we need to be watching. But in the meantime, we're to be doing. Doers of the word. You know, we always assume that somebody who's well off financially must be right with God. That's not the case. There's a lot of 
really bad people that are doing well financially. We, we, we talk about people with a charismatic personality that are able to just go talk to people. Oh, they must be doing great things for the kingdom of God. Not necessarily. They may just be popular. They may just be funny. And we put all of these stigmas on it. And the truth is, is that it's really simple. That we go out in the world and we preach the gospel. We do exactly what Jesus did. He taught in the synagogues. He preached the gospel of the kingdom of God in the streets. And he laid hands on the sick and they recovered. Amen to that. And we're missing at least two of those steps. Mm-hmm. Because if we only we feel good when we come to church on Sunday and we get the word and, and all of that, that's, that's not enough. We're here to equip. We're here to prepare, equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to go into the world, to do something. But too often that's where we stop. We don't take the next step. We don't say, okay, God, where are you going? It's important to be led by the Spirit of God. It's important to be sensitive to what He tells you to do. But you shouldn't ever have to be led to share the gospel. It should be a part of your DNA and who you are. So take some time, guys, this week. Before we get into Yom Kippur, when we start talking about that, let's take some time and let's examine ourselves and say, okay, God, am I doing everything you told me? Am I really planting? Am I really watering? Or have I just fooled myself? that I am doing what you told me to do. Because if you don't know, and you look in the mirror, it's like you forgot what you look like when you turn around. 